Jonathan, our director of student ministries, told me that uh, it actually was uh, one of the students or a couple of them that said, enough of these ice cream parties. We've had four. We've got to study uh, the word. And, uh, and uh, so thankful that Jonathan and Ashley and their family are here. Uh, last couple of Wednesday nights, uh, numbers aren't everything, but there have been 20-some uh, uh, students at the, at the group, uh, a number of them uh, not a part of our church, uh, that friends are bringing friends. And uh, so as that ministry seeks to rebuild, uh, you know, give... Uh, Thanks uh, for that. And how many uh, of our crew staff members uh, are heading to Wisconsin this week? If look around, lots of hands, and I'm sure some I know have been on the road uh, already. Uh, we're thankful for the those of you that are serving in other ministries as well. But I uh, wanted to especially, uh, you know, ask you to pray for those that uh, are gathering from uh, around the country, and I'm sure some around the world uh, this week as they have their staff training. Let's pray. Father, we, as best we know how, seek to bow before you. Just thinking of you and thinking rightly of you humbles us. How gracious you have been in giving your word in the Torah and the prophets. And the wisdom of Proverbs. And ultimately, uh, in the living word of your son and through his lips and the words of the apostles. Uh, we honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Decided early this week that before uh, moving back into at least uh, a few more sermons on some of uh, the parables, that I wanted to take a second week on uh, where we were last week looking at the triune God and particularly uh, at the eternally begotten Son, the second person of the Godhead. Um, things in the worship service already, including the song we just sang, uh, remind me that um, with every one of the millions of divorce court gavels, divorce granted, we teach the rising generations that no promises are really worth keeping at great cost. And with every abortion, we teach that not all lives are worth birthing. And with every stabbing, and there are hundreds of times more stabbings than shootings every year that take lives, we teach that life is cheap. And we work for justice. We should. We should do what the song says. But everything about studying the doctrine of God and the work of the eternal Son of God when He humiliated Himself, becoming incarnate, says that all of our efforts should cry out to us for the grace of God to pour out. And, O oh Lord, come quickly because 
we will not be fixed. Don't believe the lies. The church will not transform the world, never has and never will, until all evil is put down when the Son incarnate hands the kingdom back to his Father, and we'll touch on that in just a moment. So, quick review of where we were last week. We began with John 1. If you want more depth and weren't here, uh, listen back to it. The Word, the eternal Son of God, was already at the beginning of what we call time, already was before anything that was created. The Word was with God, was God, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. When we talk about the Word and the Son, that's what we're talking about. It's hard to even put it in your head that what we call time didn't even exist. But the Son was, didn't become, was. Just like the Father and the Spirit were. This word, John 1, logos in Greek, the Hebrew word debar, is connected to creation, to revelation, to deliverance. And God's word here in John 1 we find to be His word slash Son. That which eternally was the word, which came to us by grace in the Scripture, in the Torah, in the prophecies, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 8, as a pointer, has now incarnated. We looked at John 1.14, which speaks of, in the ESV, the only Son from the Father, the New American Standard, the only begotten from the Father, the NIV, the one and only Son who came from the Father, and uh, I said, don't worry about the differences in translations. There's all kinds of things historically we could go uh, into there. For 400 years, English translations used only begotten. But I said simply this, we should note that if the Son is from the Father always, no beginning eternally, and is the only such Son in reality and is revealed as such in Scripture, then the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten from the Father and is also the unique one-of-a-kind Son. So instead of fighting over the translations, uh, we might just think of the reality that if the Father is the Father and the Son is eternally the Son, then being begotten simply describes sonness. And it describes a sonness that is not like human sonness, where a son or a daughter comes of the same essential nature as their parents, but is like them in finiteness. Here we have what we can only begin to comprehend by thinking of what it is not. It is a sonship like no other because there is the same essence, and the Father who begets is no greater than the Son who is begotten, nor the Spirit who proceeds, who is spirated, breathed out from both of them. The early fathers understood the Scriptures well. We ought to read them well and see what God is really like. I said last in John 1 last week that in John 1, 16 through 18, uh, verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the ESV translates, who is at the Father's side. The only God who is at the Father's side. That's John 1, 1. He has made him known. Grace upon grace. I think I mentioned that the little preposition there, don't like getting into the weeds of grammar too often, but it's, uh, uh, it's in the Greek, karin, grace, anti-karitas, grace against grace. 
And I think the essence of it is what we've already said in other ways, that, uh, that there was grace, the word in Torah, prophecy, promise, wisdom, and now we have grace against, on top of, beyond that grace in the person of His Son. Both grace, that which was before in the Word, now in the living Word, we have the ultimate grace, because only the only God who is at the right hand of the Father from eternity can make the Father known. It's all over John and all over the rest of the Scripture. We're studying this in part because, as I mentioned last week, distortions in the church's understanding of the Trinity have been being taught for decades by a number of books and teachers and some really good guys and brothers I love. Uh, but it, need, it brings us a need to think about some things. Therefore, and I only touched on this last week in the first heading, the crisis of creedlessness. What do I mean by that? Well, one thing is obviously the importance of creeds, the importance of confessions. Uh, why? Number one, because not only are creeds not held highly in some branches of the church, uh, but because they aren't, the Reformers' term sola scriptura is greatly misunderstood. Sola scriptura, is, scripture alone, is understood by many believers today as it's just me and my Bible. It's pulling out a verse, maybe a paragraph at best, uh, and studying it. It's churches that cry, I have no creed but the Bible. We have no creed but the Bible. Uh, but we've already seen denomination after denomination go down the tubes because they say that, but then they have a creed and they either agree or disagree on it. And when they don't talk about it, what's really in the practical creed that they have, they go 40 years down the road and find out that all the teachers in their colleges and seminaries that they founded don't believe the same Bible they believe. Which is why in the earliest years of the church, and I wish I had time to go into this. If you want some reading, I'll give it to you if you ask me. Uh, but there was something in the early church called the rule of faith that a lot of you have never even heard the term. And it was basically the oral tradition that almost all of the early churches, there were certainly heresies and differences creeping up, but they weren't ever the majority. Uh, they were the principal things that we find summarized in the Apostles' Creed. That historically, almost all the churches early on understood and preached. This was the gospel tradition that in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Paul preached. We know it from the early worship of the church. And after that, the fathers in uh, the 4th century and centuries after that, because of divisions that were coming with heresies creeping in, put summaries of other doctrines first about the nature of God in the Nicene Creed in 325, in the Revision in 381. And it's not that those things are equal to Scripture, but Calvin and Luther knew not only Greek and Hebrew and Latin, they also knew the church fathers, they knew the creeds. Uh, you read Calvin, and I recommend it highly, and you find yourself, as a pastor who studied Hebrew and Greek, falling on your face before God saying, how did one man who died in his 50s learn all this? How did he know so much more than the seminary professors I've taught with when his library was so much smaller? It's because he studied the Scriptures above all and taught the church to put the Scriptures above all. But he understood the, 
historical understanding of the church and what it had fought over and what it had learned, he didn't operate in a vacuum. And I mentioned last week, uh, we need creeds because we forget that the Holy Spirit illumined the Scriptures to believers before our day in all of these things. We're in danger of a term I've used before that I hope you'll learn from C.S. Lewis of chronological snobbery. It's the curse of our age. We think that everything new is better. But if you start reading some of the really best of the old, you'll find out, like I've said, I can't believe I'm this stupid at 75. (laughs) And that I'm always trying to learn more because there's so much more to learn. And I know the the Spirit has worked in the church before my day. And the early church fathers and medieval scholars use Plato's and Aristotle's words, and I mention that because uh, one of the excuses for not listening to the creeds and the early theology of the church is that, uh, well, they got caught all up in Greek philosophy. If you will really study, and if you want some pointers again, I'll give it to you, uh, the early fathers at their best, and some fathers were better than others, they aren't the Scripture. But they understood that the church took over Platonic philosophy and made it subject to the mind of Christ. They simply used some of the best thinking in terms of their day to communicate that which the Scriptures show us is eternal and hard to say in words but the words we have. It's really no different than when Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, uses Uh, the Hittite uh, suzerainty treaties of the sovereign kings and the vassal kings, the book of Deuteronomy is basically a biblical taking over of those categories which the people of Moses' day knew and showing them that, that God is a king like no king you've ever seen and his followers and subjects. So he uses the known to teach the unknown. So the tools of the language must be subject to the Scripture alone and the teaching of Christ and the apostles alone. And we ought always be learning, but we ought to be smart enough to learn from those who've gone before us. Uh, Those of you who love R.C. Sproul, one of the reasons you ought to love him, whether you know it or not, is he was an historical theologian. He didn't just study doctrine. He studied how doctrine developed in the church, why the creeds said what they said, why the ones that were written in 325 and 381 dealt with this issue, and why the ones a couple of centuries later dealt with this issue, because these issues, because that's where the attacks were coming. So this morning, I'm talking about one of the attacks, and it's not really an attack. I think it's with good intent. I love Wayne Grudem's books. I've learned so much from his systematic theology, but don't read what he says about the eternal functional subordination of the Son. He's wrong. And very briefly, I'm going to tell you why this morning, though not focusing on Grudem and and Bruce Ware. But decades ago, they began developing a view which wasn't totally new to them that uh, went in the direction of what's been called the social trinity. And I don't have time to talk about that, but I mentioned last week that uh, Jürgen Moltmann and uh, Miroslav Wolf and the liberation theologians of South America with a more Marxist bent Uh, began to look at the Trinity as a model, uh, as three separate individuals within the Godhead who were incredibly generous to one another without, in Moltmann, without a king. In other words, one of the world's problems is we've had this divine right of kings thing. Let's get rid of it, and in order to get rid of it, let's change the Trinity. 
Because if there's a king in the Trinity, and we're going to see there's an equality, a king of three, uh, then that changes things. And so they began to teach something different than the Nicene Creed. And I think one of the practical goals they had was to root a husband's headship back to an alleged eternal father's headship of the son in eternity. And note I used deliberately the word alleged subordination of the son to the father in eternity. That is not what the church has taught for 2,000 years. It's not what the scripture teaches. And in 2016, I don't have time to tell you the story, they began to get pushback. First, probably uh, from Liam Gallagher, a wonderful PCA pastor of 10th Perez in Philly, who started writing some articles. And then Carl Truman and a friend of mine and uh, another colleague of theirs, and then others. And a lot of people said, you guys have abandoned the Nicene Creed. And they didn't take it very nicely. And guess who, didn't, who else didn't take it very nicely? Can I let out the church's dirty secrets here? They got pushed back from publishing companies. Because you can't push back on authors that have books that are some of our best sellers. Even if they need correction, we can't correct them. I'm being pretty harsh, Lord forgive me. But, I mean, that's the way without the Spirit of God and the Word of God we tend to work, don't we? We need to learn how to take criticism, whether we're a publisher, a seminary, a pastor. And I try to really be open and listen. I read people who disagree with me all the time. But why is this important? It's because even in the way that Grudem and Ware in particular began to correct themselves by affirming the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, which they had really kind of disavowed in their early writings and teaching, they so firmly read the Son's subordination to the Father in eternity back into eternity that even though they tied that subordination and called it functional subordination, not essence subordination. They tried to define, divide the essence of Father, Son, and Spirit, which were all one, from the functions that they had. But they went so far with the functions that anybody that thinks begins to scratch their head, well, they're really describing essence. And that's what they were doing. So why is this important? Number one, it can affect how we understand and worship the Son. That's pretty important. The Son is not Lesser, the eternal Son is not lesser than the Father. And we should not worship Him as lesser and having lesser, lesser glory or only reflected glory. The glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Scripture tells us, is co-equal. And understanding how this drift occurred can help you better read and understand Scripture. On a number of scriptural subjects, and this is giving you a way into what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes, on a number of subjects, you need to discern what a given text is focusing on, or you will distort and misread the text and get confused. Uh, we read one of them uh, this morning when Steve read the words uh, uh, of assurance. Scripture speaks of salvation uh, in three tenses. In some places, it talks of salvation in the past tense. Jesus justified us once for all. He did it. It's done. But Scripture also talks about salvation in the present tense. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Did any of the else, anyone else here this morning panic when, as a young Christian, they read that verse after learning about grace? 
I remember learning about grace and then coming to this, work out your salvation. I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. How'd that get in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible because justification is past tense, done once for all. But sanctification is our cooperating with the Spirit of God, foundationally His work, His life, but our cooperation in the present. And then there's the future tense. Ironically, we've read about this already this morning. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And some of you when the first time you read that passage were maybe like me and said, wait a minute, I thought I was already adopted. Well, yes, I'm already adopted in the first fruits of the Spirit giving me life, but I will not be fully adopted until Christ returns and the new creation is fulfilled and I get my new body. So I have, but there's stuff that's not yet. And you've got to understand different passages by reading the context to know which you're talking about or you'll get confused. God's revelation unfolds over biblical history. You have to discern what period is being talked about and who's being talked to. There are promises to Israel as a nation, promises to the broader covenant of grace that includes all believers, Jew and Gentile. You can get really fouled up if you take a promise that's only to the national covenant of Israel and, and apply it to you. I hate to tell you this, but uh, we're not in political season fully yet, I'm glad, but... Uh, when 7 Chronicles 7.14, if you don't know what it is, I'm not going to quote it, uh, gets applied politically, we're often uh, disturbing the fact that it was written as a promise to Israel, and while it principally can apply to the church in America, it does not apply to America, or Russia, or Ukraine, or Japan, but it can apply to the church. There are promises to the apostles that are to the apostles and not to all believers. There are promises to the apostle that are to all believers. Whoa! That's why you need teachers. It's why we need to study. It's why we need to think and be flexible. There are promises for the beginning of the last days. And when did the last days begin? With the resurrection of Jesus and his new body. And then there are other promises that focus on the end of the last days, when the consummation is here and the second coming of Christ is coming. When at the marriage supper of the Lamb, believers sit together, Jews and Gentiles. I remember a dispensationalist man who finally got smart enough to become an elder at a church I served in Miami. Uh, First time I taught that uh, Hebrew Old Testament saints and New Testament saints were both at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He was trained at Moody Bible Institute and he went, "Ah, that's not what scripture teaches. Well, I beg to differ in my dispensationalist chairman of the theology department in a dispensational seminary uh, taught that. He said, just look at how all the promises, the further into the end times you get, all begin to come together. And a dispensationalist actually, actually wrote in the 1970s, there's an essential unity between the people of God in the Older Testament and the New. And he didn't get fired. Because his wise faculty and board knew what he was saying was true. So this danger, while it has a noble desire to avoid leaning falsely too much on tradition or the church, has led to the drift away from the church's foundation of understanding God's triune nature. I'm going to move really fast here, so just listen. Don't try to take too many notes. If you take notes, I just want you to get the main points. 
Second heading, a significant misstep is to read redemptive Scripture passages, passages about the humiliation of Christ, as if the eternal essence of the Son, we could apply it to the Holy Spirit, includes subordination in a hierarchy, Son and Spirit, to the Eternal Father. And I hope that you at least have a taste of why that's not likely to be true when we just glance at these passages. I printed portions of them on your outline. Our main one is in Philippians 2. I'm adding verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So he didn't grasp onto it, hold onto it. He emptied himself of it. By, how did he do it? By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He was in the form of God, John 1. But now he takes on human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Why is it to the glory of God the Father? Because this is the redemptive incarnate work of Christ, of the Son in the flesh. Philippians 2 has been an anchor for those teaching this eternal functional subordination of the Son. But I think a little thought shows their misstep. Uh, we didn't read verses 1, 2, and 3 in Philippians 2, but it speaks of our having encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Paul tells his readers they may complete his apostolic joy by being of the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, not letting ambition or conceit hinder, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4 tells us to look out for the interests of others in addition to your own. Verse 5 calls us to the ultimate example, Christ in His incarnation. And this might seem a fair comparison to motivate us to step up more fully to obey His admonitions. But if we read carefully, Paul has already introduced a giant contrast between Christ and us. This isn't just that the God-man Jesus did this as a man, and therefore we are to do it. But there's a giant contrast. He introduces in 2.1 that our encouragement is in Christ and our participation in the Spirit. And the contrast between Christ and us becomes gigantic. I don't have a big enough word. I look for others. Uh, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, not in your own minds, left to themselves, Christ Jesus, who though He was present, active, participle, in the form of, in the estate of God, John 1.1, 1, 1, did not count that equality with God a thing that He had to hold on to, but He humbled Himself. He took the form of a servant, being born incarnation into the likeness of men, and He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Notice first, there is no speaking of subordination or even of obedience until the Son has already taken on flesh. This is not about eternity. It's not a passage about eternity. It's a passage that actually doesn't use the word subordination. It talks about humiliation, that the eternal Son humiliated Himself 
in concert with the will of Father and Son in unity, and laid aside for a time visibly that which was His eternally. And He emptied Himself of that which was His rightful existence. The misstep in reading the passage essentially about redemption, redemptive form of the eternal Son, is it's about incarnation, and you can't make it apply back into eternity. And if that were not enough, please notice chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, an often unnoticed climax of Paul's argument. It's the same flow of the text. As you have always obeyed, Paul says to the Philippians, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God, the triune God who is at work in you, both willing and working according to His good pleasure. It's the only place in the passage that I see where God in the broadest eternal sense, and praise God, it's true for you this morning. In case you're kind of missing where this is all going, let me apply it to you right now. If you are a believer trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God by His Spirit and His Word is working in you this morning to will and to work according to His pleasure. And sometimes your will is working against that. But He's working. So humble yourself and respond. Uh, The contrast is that the unthinkable has happened. The Son who was in the beginning, who was with God, was God, made everything, let go of His eternal form and added flesh. If He's done this and even works in us, how should we respond with just incredible delight and prayer? Very quickly on, and I'm going to be a lot faster with these other short texts. 1 Corinthians 11, 3b. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. If you know 1 Corinthians 11, forget what you know, because we're not going to talk about it, and it will only confuse you. I want you to see just this one thing, that Paul begins this text by affirming for them, uh, maintaining the traditions, and his guiding principle Uh, seems not to be teaching at all about God and eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, but rather he simply reminds them as the church that having a head is normal. And his reasoning is Christ is the head of every man, the husband is the head of every wife, and the head of Christ is God. It doesn't say the head of the eternal Son word uh, is God. It's, It's the Father, rather. It says, the head of the Messiah, the anointed one, the head of the incarnate Son, is God. And he uses the word Christos, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, and he doesn't point beyond the incarnate Messiah, nor do any of the other near uses of Christos in 1 Corinthians. There's no serious debate in the New Testament's teaching that the incarnate Son is obedient and subordinate to his heavenly Father. It's all over the place. The mistake comes is when we go from the incarnate obedient subservient son to think about the eternal son, the eternal word in the Godhead. Quickly, Ephesians 5, 20 to 23. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, a quite common phrase. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. It's no surprise that the Messiah, the incarnate God, 
uh, is head of the church, for it is God incarnate who gathers His church, who died for His church. Everything about His earthly work is about His church, and He's the head of the church. But you can't jump from that analogy in Christ being the head of the church and the husband to the head of his wife and say that God the Father, eternal head of the, uh, the God the eternal Father is head of God the eternal Son. It nowhere teaches that in Scripture. And the early fathers never taught it. Calvin and Luther did not teach it. Paul's instruction here is in no natural way pointing to the eternal relation of the Son to the Father. And this short list of verses I'm giving you reflects a technique that in some of the articles about the eternal submission uh, or the uh, eternal uh, submission of the Son functionally, uh, they give out in their books and lectures a whole list of verses and say, see this, and they get you to agree with that. A whole list and says, see, get you to agree with that. And I decided not to do that this morning. I'm forcing you to look at more than you want to look at in one sermon. Uh, But if you do that and you pick and choose your verses, you can say, see, this is what the Scripture teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. We've looked at all the verses. Problem is they haven't looked at all the verses. And they especially leave out the verses uh, that don't lead where their argument is going. And I'm not saying they do that deceitfully. Have you ever been excited about something and put your best case forward? And that's where we need one another to help pick one another's cases. Uh, apart. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, one last thing here. This is the linchpin verse, uh, the anchor verse for so many that teach the functional subordination of the eternal Son. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter about what? The resurrection, thank you. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, he's the first resurrected one because he had an earthly nature and, and body. Uh, then at the coming, those who belong to Christ. Here's the key verse. Then comes the end when he, Christ, the anointed one, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under the, their feet. And those who teach the eternal functional and subordination of the son say see there it is the son submits himself and gives everything back to the father that's not what the passage is saying and i've only got a couple of minutes to explain it to you but let me tell you this from beginning to end first corinthians 15 is about the gospel paul preached with a focus on the incarnation to the resurrection and ascension 1524, which for many is foundational to this functional subordination of the Son, speaks rather of the fulfillment of the earthly incarnate resurrection work of the Son. Indeed, Christ has conquered the enemies. Satan's plan is foiled. Even heavenly battles, read the book of Revelation, are won. But why did there need to be battles? Because Satan rebelled, Eve rebelled, Adam rebelled, and human beings and other heavenly creatures had forever been, uh, not forever, but from that point, uh, had been rebelling. So when the kingdom redemptive work of the incarnate Son is done, everything that was in rebellion is put down. Read Revelation again. And we're talking about this incarnate work of Jesus. And when His incarnate work is done, He hands the redemptive work back to the Father 
and says it's done. There are no enemies. Everyone has been, been put under my feet as you planned. And then, what does it say? It says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection to him, that God may be all in all. If you want to make this text about the eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father, it should say, then the Father will be all in all. But now the incarnate Son is back in heaven with the Spirit, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have no rebels in their creation, and they make a new creation in which no one who's rebellious gets into the heavenly city that comes in down in the new heavens and the new earth. The passage doesn't complete itself except that he who is co-creator apart from whom nothing has been made that has been made, by whom and for whom and through whom everything has been made, has now, now fully prepared for creation to become new. And the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit are all in all, one in three, three in one, over everything. I really don't think there's any other way to read the passage with honesty, unless you start out assuming that it must tie together the eternal and the immediate. But there ought to be something in the passage that tells you it ties it together, not an assumption you bring to the text. The three persons of the triune God are of singular substance, do not subdivide God's essence, are co-equal in will and eternal workings. They are one. Scripture attributes some workings to one person, Father, Son, or Spirit more specifically, but makes it clear that all participate in all. Another way of looking at this is to think about worship as we get ready to close. How do we worship the eternal Son now incarnate? The mystery into which angels long to look. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, if you can sort of remember back to our studying through 1 Peter. What was the mystery into which the angels longed to look? It wasn't that the eternal Son who had always been subordinate to the eternal Father in eternity now took on flesh and just continued to do what He always had to do because He was subordinate. That is a far lesser narrative than the fact that Eternal Father, eternal Son, and eternal Spirit, who are one in will, co-equal, no division, decide in unity that the Son, who is the Word, the expression, who had given Torah, prophecy, Proverbs, is going to take on flesh. And He who didn't have to be subordinate will make Himself subordinate to the Father and even make Himself subordinate to the will of men and let them hang him on a cross. That is the thing angels can't believe. That a son who is very God of very God looks that way. I've got a note in your notes about uh, recent studies and mentioned Richard Bauckham. Don't have time to go into it, but Bauckham has done incredible work looking at what we can learn about what the early church believed in the early centuries from the way they worshiped and what got into their worship services and into their creeds. And there's this narrative, you may hear it around Easter time when all the networks try to find flaws in the Christian faith, uh, that, uh, that there were all these different heresies and one of them became orthodoxy. That's the narrative. Is It just sort of happened. The one that won, everything's about power and authority. So the group that won is now the Orthodox Christian Church. Bauckham goes behind the doors and says, no, 
The early church worshipped Jesus as absolutely divine and incarnate. And if you want to know how true that is, I close with this. A fourth century hymn, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius wrote, I assume in Latin, sometime between 348 and 413. The Nicene Creed that we read last week and that I printed part of uh, was written first in 325 and then revised in 381. So this hymn is from the worship of the early church. Why is all of what we talked about this morning? Because this is how we ought to write at least some of our hymns, and it's how we ought to worship. Follow along just reading and think about the words. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see evermore and evermore. Of that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace by the Holy Ghost conceiving bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's Redeemer, first revealed His sacred face evermore and evermore. This is He whom heaven-taught singers sang of old with one accord, whom the scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now He shines, the long-expected, let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven, adore Him. Angel hosts His praises sing. All dominions bow before Him and extol our God and King. Jesus is the God and King, along with the Father and the Son. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring evermore and evermore. Christ to thee, with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, hymn and chant and high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and dominion and eternal victory evermore and evermore. Three in one and one in three co-equal. We worship Him this morning bowing before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.